Well, thank you for joining us. My name is Kent Hovind. I was a high school science teacher for 15 years and earned my doctorate in education. I've been very concerned about education and particularly the subject of the teaching of evolution and creation in our public schools. It's my great honor uh, in the last 10 years to be an evangelist speaking on the subject of creation and evolution and getting into many, many hundreds of public schools and sharing uh, the most important topic of origins with the kids there in public schools. What I'd like to do in this tape is uh, cover two subjects. Number one, we're going to talk about uh, what can be done, what can teachers do in a public school? What does the law say? You know, what's right and what's wrong? And then secondly, the second half of this tape will be an actual presentation with me speaking to about 700 students in a public school. And many teachers will use the, this tape to show to their class uh, the evidence for creation and the evidence against evolution because I try to avoid referring to God or the Bible, though there's no reason uh, that you can't. I just purposely don't when I go speak in public schools. I'd like to say, first of all, that most of the public school teachers that I know are sincere, dedicated, professional people. They are uh, oftentimes very intelligent and very uh, godly people who want to do right. My brother is a 28-year veteran teaching in public schools. My mom taught for 20 years and retired from teaching public schools. Many simply do not know that they can teach creation science. For some reason, people think that you can't talk about creation or the Bible in the public schools. And I'd like to show you what the law says and simply put that thought to rest. So what does the law say? What can we teach anyway? Well, to give you a little history, in the 1800s, when the public school system began in the early 1800s, uh, they used the Bible as a uh, curriculum book. It was part of the classroom, and teachers were taught, uh, students were taught from the, straight from the Bible. They were taught about the Noah and the flood and the whole story of creation. There was no problem at all. As the public school system began to grow and spread around the, uh, the country, people began to include the evolution teaching, uh, particularly about the mid-1860s or 70s when Darwin's book started to become popular. Uh, teachers began to include some of this in their curriculum. Then in the early 1920s, some states passed laws requiring schools to not teach evolution. The most famous, of course, is the Scopes Monkey Trial. The world's most famous court trial uh, took place in Dayton, Tennessee in 1925. This is the actual transcript of the trial right here. What happened, Tennessee had passed a law that says you cannot teach evolution. And there's a long story about uh, that, that trial, uh, and especially about the books that have been written or the movie that was done since then, called Inherit the Wind, which is an absolute perversion of what really happened. And I would recommend you actually read the court transcript yourself, read it word for word, and then as you watch the movie, you'll see thousands of changes that were made purposely to make the Christians and the Bible-believing people or the creationists look dumb. And that's not at all what happened there in Dayton, Tennessee, that hot summer in 1925. So there's uh, information you can get from Bryan College, which was started in honor of William Jennings Bryan, who was the uh, man who defended the teaching of creation and the exclusion of evolution in that trial. You could read uh, what Mr. Bryan had to say on the subject. You can get the entire court case from Bryan College, or you can get good information from George Serrell, who has written quite an expose of the errors in the video in the movie Inherit the Wind. Please do not show that to your students, or if you do, give them some equal time by showing creationist information. You certainly can do that. But in 1925, the, the evolutionists lost the case. Uh, they lost that day. Uh, Scopes, the teacher who claimed he taught evolution, though he didn't know if he ever did or not, uh, Scopes was fined $100. Later the fine was overturned on a technicality, but the case was never overturned. It remained against the law to teach evolution in many states until 1968. The last laws banning the teaching of evolution were overturned in 1968. 
And now it's okay to teach evolution. It's always been okay to teach creation. There's never been a law against it. There are numerous impact articles put out by the Institute for Creation Research. They put these out there 10 cents a piece, and they're up to 350-something now. So you could get all the back issues for $35. This goes through all the different um, things about creation, evolution, and quite a, quite a few of these impact articles deal just with the topic of teaching creation in public schools. Might be very helpful information to you to show you that you can teach creation science in your public school. Even the evolutionists admit this. It's never been against the law to teach creation. Stephen Jay Gould, a uh, raving evolutionist, said, No statute exists in any state to bar instruction in creation science. It could be taught before, and it can be taught now. So he knows it can be taught. Evolutionary biologist Michael Zimmerman said, The Supreme Court ruling did not in any way outlaw the teaching of creation science in public school classrooms. Quite simply, it ruled that in the form taken by the Louisiana law, it is unconstitutional to demand equal time for this particular subject. Creation science can still be brought into science classrooms if and when teachers and administrators feel that it is appropriate. Numerous surveys have shown that teachers and administrators favor just this route. And in fact, creation science is being taught in science courses throughout the country. So don't let somebody tell you you cannot talk about creation in the classroom. Yes, you certainly can. Eugenia Scott, the president of the National Center for Science Education, who I debated one time on the radio, kind of a one-sided debate. I got about eight minutes, and she got about 45 minutes. But uh, Eugenia Scott, whose uh, their whole, their whole uh, organization, the National Center for Science Education, uh, is they exist to stop teaching to stop people from teaching creation in the classrooms. They put out pamphlets all the time, sending them to public schools every place. They're very well funded. And they say, you know, don't teach creation in the classrooms and only teach evolution in the classrooms. And there's really a lot of misinformation coming out. And teachers are just plain confused about what to do. But Eugenia Scott said, the Supreme Court decision says only that the Louisiana law violates the constitutional separation of church and state. It does not say that no one can teach scientific creation. And unfortunately, many individual teachers do. Some school districts even require equal time for creation and evolution. William Provine, uh, quite a uh, strong believer in the evolution theory, said, Teachers and school boards in public schools are already free under the Constitution of the USA to teach about supernatural origins if they wish in their science classes. Laws can be passed in most countries of the world requiring discussion of supernatural origins in science classes and still satisfy national legal requirements. He continued and said, I have a suggestion for evolutionists. Include discussion of supernatural origins in your classes and promote discussion of them in public and other schools. Come off your high horse about having only evolution taught in science classes. The exclusionism you promote is painfully self-serving and smacks of elitism. Why are you afraid of confronting the supernatural creationism believed by the majority of persons in the USA and perhaps worldwide? Shouldn't students be encouraged to express their beliefs about origins in a class discussing origins by evolution? Well, yay, William, I think that's good. I think, yes, students should be taught both sides of this vital issue. Ultimately, there are only two options. Either there is a creator or there isn't. And it's perfectly fine to teach the kids there is a creator, or the teacher could say, I believe there is a creator. It's perfectly fine to do that. They want to get impact article number 196, which explains some of the laws about teaching creation science in a public school. It's always been perfectly fine. The ACLU seems to have been very uh, instrumental in spreading some false information or misleading information, trying to let teachers think they cannot talk about creation in the classroom. I think what typically happens is the ACLU will threaten a lawsuit if some teacher teaches creation. Now, they would lose the lawsuit, but that doesn't matter. The fact that they threatened a lawsuit makes the average school board 
run and hide and say, well, let's, let's not talk about the Bible or talk about creation because we can't afford to defend ourselves against this lawsuit. Even though the ACLU, ACLU would lose, they will threaten the suit and sometimes even bring suit just so that the harassment factor will cause teachers to stop teaching creation. And that is very most unfortunate, but happens, I'm afraid, all the time. The student teachers are not allowed to convert the students or try to get the students to become a Baptist or Catholic or Buddhist or something like that, but they certainly can talk about creation in the classroom. You may want to get information from Elizabeth Ridenour, uh, the National Council for Bible Curriculum in public schools from North Carolina. They've done a tremendous job on putting out information about how you can get a Bible class started in your public school. It's always been perfectly fine. You may want to get the book by... Uh, Dwayne Gish, Teaching Creation Science in Public Schools, showing how that it is perfectly fine. You might want to get information from the Gablers. The Gablers in Longview, Texas, have spent a lifetime, uh, for the last 40 years, they've been putting out information on uh, good public school textbooks. And what does the law actually say? They review all the textbooks that come out and help people select good books. For instance, the Gablers have said, states can legally require teachers to discuss evolution in science class. They cannot require them to discuss creation. Teachers may discuss creation in science classes if they wish. So what's happened is some people, I think well-meaning people, have tried to go into states' legislatures and say, I demand creation be taught. Well, the Supreme Court has consistently ruled against that. But the Supreme Court says, look, you can teach it if you want, but we cannot make anybody teach it. We cannot demand that it be taught. Um, courts allow states to require discussing scientific weaknesses in evolution, but not requiring discussion, ev discussing evidence for creation. Let's just look at some of the actual Supreme Court cases and see what they've said. In 1963, Supreme Court said, It certainly may be said the Bible is worthy of study for its literary and historic qualities. Nothing we have said here indicates that such study of the Bible or of religion, when presented objectively as part of a secular program of education, may be affected consistently with the First Amendment. In 1980, the Supreme Court said, The Bible may constitutionally be used in an appropriate study of history, civilization, ethics, comparative religion, or the like perfectly fine to include creation in the classroom, even teach the Bible in the classroom. Eighth Circuit Court ruled in 1980, it's okay to teach the Bible in a public school. In 1987, the Supreme Court ruled again. They said teaching a variety of scientific theories about the origins of mankind to school children might be done with the clear secular intent of enhancing the effectiveness of science instruction. They said teachers already possess the flexibility to present a variety of scientific theories about the origins of humankind and are free to teach any and all facets of the subject. California uh, State Board of Education ruled in their, national, uh, in their policy on teaching natural science. They said discussions of any scientific fact, hypothesis, or theory related to the origins of the universe are appropriate to the science curriculum. If you want to keep up on what's going on in uh, education and curriculum, you may want to get a hold of Fred. FredB001 at Spectra.net and say, put me on the loop, and you'll get all sorts of emails keeping you up to date on what's happening with education. You may also want to get the video, Crisis in the Classroom by Phyllis Schlafly. Tremendous video showing what's happening in our public school classrooms and what the kids are being taught. The average teacher has to rely on things in the textbooks. And for many years, it's been a hobby of mine to collect public school textbooks. I have hundreds of them. My wife says too many. But as I review these textbooks, it's, it's, it's sad to see the things that are taught in these textbooks, things that just simply are not true. But the average teacher doesn't have time when they've got all these lessons to prepare to know they don't have time to study them all to find out which books are good. I mean, which ones should I use for my kids? Even people on the textbook selection committee often do not know, how do I tell which books are good? What do I do anyway? 
Well, you might want to get the impact article number 278 from the Institute for Creation Research, icr.org, uh, where they rated the textbooks in 1991. They took all the textbooks that are available for biology, for instance, and rated them based upon the percentage of text devoted to evolution. How strongly is evolution pushed in this book? And I think you'll find they range all the way from not much to a whole lot in the textbooks. For instance, Merrill Science put out biology, a book called An Everyday Experience. It only had 2.9% of the book devoted to evolutionary teaching. Uh, even that was isolated into a few simple places, a few single places where it would be easy to simply skip those sections or cut the pages out. I don't know why that thought never occurs to people, but man, if your school bought the book, you have the authority to cut the pages out if you don't want your kids taught that uh, information. Uh, another option is to get uh, stickers in the front of the book that warn the kids about information that's not true. And the school districts are free to teach this, teach creation if they want. They're free to exclude evolution. The state can require them to discuss evolution, but they certainly cannot require them to believe in evolution. You find the books range from 2.9% uh, in teaching of, of evolution all the way up to 15%, where they promote the evolution theory like it's some kind of fact of science. You know, don't you dare question this. I would recommend you do two things. If you're on the textbook selection committee, or if you're going to select books for your school, pick the book that's the least poisonous, the one with the least amount of evolution in it, and then do two things. Write to the other publishers and tell them why you didn't pick their book. If you wrote to uh, HBJ, Harcourt Brace Jovanovich, and said, we did not pick your book this year because you had you know, too much evolution or false information. Textbooks are very good at using false information to push the evolution theory. And that simply isn't fair, of course, isn't right, and is actually illegal in many states. But they don't have any other evidence for their theory. So they use false information, things that have been proven wrong years ago, as supposed evidence for their theory. For instance, textbooks will often teach that the human embryo has gill slits, which was proven wrong in 1874, but it's still in textbooks today. Every biology textbook that I'm aware of, and I have hundreds of them, teaches that the human embryo has gill slits, and that is evidence that we went through a fish stage in our development. Proven wrong at the court in Jena at, uh, in 1874. I don't know why that's still in the textbooks. That simply should be taken out. They also teach that there are vestigial organs, like the human has a vestigial uh, tailbone or something. That's not true at all. There are no vestigial organs, like an appendix. That's part of your immune system. So the textbooks teach things to the kids that just simply are not true. It doesn't mean all the teachers are teaching these things, but the textbooks certainly contain that information. We've got a whole videotape two hours long on this very topic, lies in the textbooks. We also have produced a little booklet called Are You Being Brainwashed by Your Public School Science Textbook? that might give uh, students or teachers some helpful information to know what is not true. I was in a debate one time with a, a professor who believes in evolution, and I showed some of the things that are not true in the textbooks. I went for about an hour. He got up and he said, Now, folks, Mr. Hoven is right. These things are not true. But I'd like to ask him a question. What would he replace them with? I thought, wait a minute. I have to find a replacement for evidence for his theory? I would say if you don't have any evidence for your theory, maybe you need to get a new theory. I don't know if that thought ever occurred to him before or not, but I sure suggested it to him. It's understandable that people want kids to believe a particular way. I mean, I try to convert people to believe what I believe, and I think probably everybody in the world does that. But there are some people who are very dedicated to teaching evolution, and they want to make sure kids believe this theory. One of the worst uh, of the textbook publishers that I've seen in all my study on this topic is the BSCS series. Well, if they get involved in it, you can count on it. It'll be loaded with evolution. They were the, one of the first groups, uh, one of the government-funded groups, to publish textbooks in 1960, 60, 61, 62, 63, during that era. Many books began to come out really pushing evolution strongly. 
and there's lots of uh, reasons behind all why that happened. If you give me a call, we can go into a long discussion sometime on that. But there's an alternative. If a teacher says, well, what book should I get? Well, I recommend you get The Least Poisonous, and that may change from year to year. It doesn't mean it's always going to be the Merrill Science. They may put a whole bunch in their books next time. You might want to get hold of the Gablers. They would be help, helpful on uh, discussing that. You might want to just get a supplemental book like this one, Of Pandas and People. This little book uh, is an excellent biology book, but it covers biology from an intelligent design perspective instead of millions of years of evolution. And that may be uh, something you could use in your classroom. Where it doesn't talk about God or the Bible, it just says, hey, there must have been a designer, an intelligent designer. I think what's in these books is so important because what the kids read in a book, of course, especially at junior high, high school level, they're going to think, well, it's in the book, it must be true. Adolf Hitler said, let me control the textbooks and I will control the state. Who selects the books you buy anyway? And how is this done? Well, textbook selection, basically, uh, to simplify a kind of a complex process here, there are 50 states in America. 22 of those states have a state textbook selection committee. In the other states, the teacher can pick their own books or the school district can pick their books. You know, there are no regulations. But in the 22 states that have a state textbook selection committee, there will be 12 or 15 or 20 people meet in the state capitol, typically, and they will get a book from each of the publishers. The publishers will send a sample copy of their book. Sometimes they even send a representative and wine them and dine them and say, you know, please buy our books. They're trying to sell their books. Money's the bottom line. And these 12 publishers will send their books saying, please buy our book. Then the uh, textbook selection committee will look over the 12 books or 10 or whatever it is, and they will pick out a few that they recommend. In Florida, for instance, where I live, the state textbook selection committee narrows it from 12 down to 5. Those five titles are sent to each of the local school districts, and the school district will select a committee of people. Usually, the school board members will select somebody to represent them on the textbook selection committee. That committee will meet typically in January or February to look over the books that are available so that they can get them ordered and get them in time for September. The committee then will look over the five approved state books, and they will pick one or two that they approve for their county. And then those books will be uh, purchased by the teacher and used for the next six years in, in class. One year they'll pick science, and the next year they pick English or history. They rotate. Different districts have different ways they do it, but that's the general concept. And the atheists and evolutionists seem to have been really good at getting on the textbook selection committees to make sure evolution is taught. They know, of course, they can't hold a meeting and teach everybody evolution in a town meeting because nobody would show up to the meeting. So they have to present, text, have to present the evolution at the taxpayer's expense via the textbooks. And that's where teachers come in, and they can do something about it. You can select books that simply don't contain that information or put a warning sticker in the front or cut out the bad pages. I mean, your school bought the book. You can do with it as you please. So I'd recommend you uh, maybe get on that committee. Some practical things you can do, and this has been done in many areas. Get the pages. Get a book. Let's say you already paid $50 for the book. You don't want to throw the whole book away. So you get the book and find the places where false information is presented like the gill slits, the tailbone being vestigial, the horse having four toes, uh, the different, every one of the so-called cavemen evidence for evolution, even the section about the geologic column and the layers being different ages. Absolutely not true. And I cover all that on our seminar videotape. You might want to get that seminar on lies in the textbooks. But you can go through your textbook, find the places where the information is not correct, and cut the, cut the page out. I'm sure you can get local volunteers in churches in your area that would be thrilled to come help do that. Cut out the false information. If you'd like, send me a sample copy of your book, and I will make a list and tell you what pages need to be removed. I have read through scores, if not hundreds and hundreds, of these textbooks, and I can find these things very quickly. Or, you know, an alternative to that, you could simply glue the pages together, the pages that contain false information. 
You could put a warning sticker in the front cover of your textbook. Alabama requires a warning sticker if books teach evolution to warn the kids the difference between micro and macro evolution. You may want to get my little brainwashed book, which contains much information in there about lies in the textbooks to show the students, hey, kids, this is not true. This has been proven wrong a long time ago. Many states have laws that require textbooks to be accurate, and I think that's very reasonable. For instance, Florida Statute 233.09 says, All instructional materials recommended by each council for use in their schools shall be, to the satisfaction of each council, accurate. Now, the problem with the Florida law is that little phrase, to the satisfaction of each council. There's the problem. There are things in Florida textbooks that are absolutely not accurate. They're bold-faced lies, but the council said they were fine, so they're, they're uh, tolerated. They need to get the lawmakers that have uh, some backbone to stand up and say, look, we'll take that phrase out. Textbooks should be accurate, period. Uh, Texas has a law that says, uh, instructional materials shall present the most factual information, and theories shall be clearly distinguished from facts and presented in an objective manner. Now, they're not in Texas textbooks, and I've got Texas textbook right here beside me. I've got quite a few of them. Uh, they are not presented objectively. Evolution is taught dogmatically, but the law says it's supposed to be. In Wisconsin, the administrative code says textbooks shall be have factual accuracy. In Alabama, they have a sticker that says, this textbook discusses evolution, a controversial theory some scientists present as a scientific explanation for the origin of living things. No one was present when life first appeared on Earth. Therefore, any statements about life's origins should be considered as theory, not fact. Microevolution, it's got a whole section describing micro and macro evolution, which are very different, by the way. No connection whatsoever between the two. You might want to get one of the Alabama stickers and use it as a model to create something for your school textbooks that you could warn the kids, hey, this information is not true. I think it's also important that students and teachers be aware of their legal rights on this topic. For instance, you might want to get this book, Students' Legal Rights, uh, in your public school campus showing how that students have the right to be exempt from any class that is teaching something contrary to their religion. If the parents go to the school and say, look, I don't want my kid taught evolution, I don't want them taught sex education or whatever, the schools have to abide by that. They have to say, okay, if you don't want the kid taught that, then we will take them out. And they have to provide alternative material and they cannot punish the student for not being in the class. They can't test them on things where they weren't, uh, when the student wasn't there. So I think that'd be a reasonable way to do it. Now. What's happening in our schools has, has me deeply concerned as I go speak in public schools very frequently. And honestly, I would like to help. I think it's important that we understand the law. What does the law say? The law says you can teach creation if you want. You don't have to, but you can if you want. Don't let anybody tell you you can't. There seems to be a lot of confusion on this topic, and it's unnecessary. I think we need to get back to teaching the basics, teach students, hey, it's okay, kids, you can teach creation. Uh, we can teach creation in class if we want. You can even read the Bible to them. Read the Bible story about the creation and say, students, what do you think? There's no problem with that whatsoever. Well, if I can be any help, please feel free to give me a call. Honestly, I'm concerned that many teachers do not know what they can and cannot do on this topic. And I would like to answer any questions I can or steer you to where you can get more information. The rest of this videotape now will contain uh, an actual presentation that I'm doing at a public school. I speak in public schools frequently. If you'd like me to speak in your public school when I'm in your area, please uh, look at my itinerary on my website, drdino.com and find out when I'm going to be close to you there and schedule me to come speak in your public school. I don't know why there seems to be some schools that are afraid to have a creationist come in. There's no reason to be afraid. You certainly can. If I'm unable to come or schedule doesn't permit, I can certainly give you a list of other people who speak on creation. But I think it's essential that students get the information that they see. Hey, it's okay. I can learn about the Bible in my public school. I can learn about creation in my public school.
So feel free to give us a call. We hope you enjoy the rest of this video. Well, good, good of you to join us here on this tape. This will be our public school presentation. My name is Kent Hovind. I was a high school science teacher for 15 years. And I now travel the country and speak on the subject of creation, evolution, and dinosaurs. I am, without apology, a young earth creationist. But I stick with the scientific aspects. And for you teachers that are watching this tape, I appreciate you taking time to look at this. And we're going to give the scientific evidence that shows the world is not billions of years old and dinosaurs did not live millions of years ago. And teachers need to be informed that they can teach creation science in the classroom if they so choose. In 1987, the Supreme Court passed a landmark decision about the Louisiana law. Louisiana was going to require their teachers to teach creation in the science class. The Supreme Court struck down that law, but they didn't say you can't teach creation. The Supreme Court said this law is unnecessary because teachers already have the right to teach creation if they want. You have the perfect right in your class, academic freedom, you can teach the creation story as given in the Bible if you'd like. Now, you can't try to convert the kid to be a Baptist or Catholic or a Buddhist or something else, but you can certainly give the creation account. It is very much part of the scientific discussion. Real science looks at all the different options. The different views, how did the world get here? The fact of the matter is, nobody alive today was here when it started. So any view of creation, be it creation, be it evolution, is going to be religious by nature. I know the subject is controversial and some folks get all bent out of shape over this question. But the problem is, they think that creation is religious, and it is, but they think that evolution is science, and it's not. Evolution is also a religion. And so I speak on this subject all the time across the country. If I can be of any help, if your students have any questions as they watch these tapes, please don't hesitate to call me. We'll put our phone number and address up on the screen. You can call or write. We have a list of many materials. We have 18 different videotapes as well as audio tapes and books, charts and things that will help clarify the subject. We talk about carbon dating and how the starlight got here. And if the world's only 6,000 years old, how did the light get here from the stars? We cover all that in our video series. I'd be glad to send you a list of those. If you just call or write, we'll send you a free list of our material. My material is not copyrighted purposely. We encourage you to share it with as many folks as you would like. And thank you for joining us. Well, it's good to be here today. My name is Kent Hoven from Pensacola, Florida. I was a high school science teacher for 15 years. And now I travel around the country and speak on the subject of creation, evolution, and dinosaurs. Of all the crazy things to do, that's what I do. You say, dinosaurs? Yes. I brought some with me today. You're welcome to play with them when we get done. I need to warn you about a few of them, though. This one is a Blondosaurus, so you need to talk to her kind of slow. All right? I also have the Styracosaurus. I cannot prove this, but I think that Styracosaurus is probably the dinosaur that invented hairspray. Just my theory on that. But all my stuff is hands-on. You kids are welcome to play with it. have all sorts of interesting things. But let me get started here. This is not my wife now. This is just a picture of her. Um, we moved to Pensacola. Uh, Christian, she moved, we moved to Pensacola, Florida, uh, early 1989, for her to finish her music degree at Pensacola Christian College. I have three teenagers uh, that are all in high school at this time, and one of them's running the camera up here. Wave at him there, Ken Andrew. All right, he's running one of the cameras. We're glad to have him with. You know, there are four great questions that man tries to answer in life. These are called your philosophical worldview questions. How do you view this world? There are basically two options. Either somebody made the world... Or, nobody made the world, the world made itself. It got here by a long, slow, gradual process called evolution. There are two competing theories, creation and evolution. Somebody is wrong. Seriously wrong, big time wrong. One of them is not correct. And I happen to be a very strong believer in creation. 
Now, the fact of the matter is, both theories, creation and evolution, both theories are religious. Neither one is provable scientifically. Some people like to think that creation is religious and evolution is science. No, no, no. They're both religious theories, both religious philosophies. But let's talk about the basic questions of life. Number one, who am I? Number two, where did I come from? Number three, where, why am I here? Number four, where, or where am I going when I die? Your answer to these four questions is determined by what we call your world view, the way you view the world. Either somebody made it or nobody made it. If nobody made this world, if man is just an accident, a product of evolution, natural, blind, random chance, then your answer to these four questions is going to be very different than mine. For instance, who am I? Well, if evolution is true, you're nothing important. You're just a bit of protoplasm that washed up on the beach. How about, uh, where did I come from? Well, if evolution is true, you came from a cosmic burp about 20 billion years ago. And there is no purpose to life. Why are we here? Hey, if evolution is true, you're only here to have fun. If it feels good, do it. That's the philosophy of humanism. And where do I go when I die? Well, if evolution's true, you just go back to the grave. You get recycled into a plant or something else. There is no afterlife. But I happen to believe the world was instantly created. And there are some purposes for us to be here. And you better find out what they are. But Adolf Hitler said, if you tell a lie long enough and loud enough and often enough, the people will believe it. The secret to getting somebody to believe a lie is constant repetition. Just keep telling them over and over and over. They'll believe it before it's over with. That's what my two big brothers did with me. I've got two older brothers, Ross and Mark. They're bigger than I, 6'4". Uh, they've always been older than I am. Matter of fact, they still are today. But uh, when I was about six or seven years old, I was raised in East Peoria, Illinois. I came running into the breakfast table one morning, and I was the first one there for breakfast. And so I got the last banana out of the bowl to put on my cereal. My two big brothers walked in a few minutes later, and they said, uh, Hey, Kent, is that the last banana? I said, Yep, and I got it. How many of you have an older brother or sister, and you know that wonderful feeling when you finally pull one over on them? They pick on you all your life. That morning, I had them, and I knew it, man. They wanted my banana. But big brothers do not beg little brothers for anything. They either beat them up and take it away by brute force, or they lie to them and trick them out of it somehow. So my big brothers lied to me. They said, Kent, do you know how bananas are made? I said, no. I've only six or seven. It's been proven in laboratory tests. The brain doesn't even start to grow till kids are 18 to 20. How many teachers can verify that from raising, teaching kids for a while? Yeah, right. No, the, they lied to me. They said, Kent, when down in South America, there's these spiders that have big, long legs. And when they die, they hang up in the trees and all their legs fold up. And then mold starts growing on those dead spider legs. And a banana is actually moldy spider legs. I said, you guys are lying to me. You just want my banana, don't you? And they said, no, brother. Cut it in half and look. You can still see the black spots in the middle where his legs were. So I cut it in half and look. Sure enough, black spots in the middle. You know, I did not eat bananas for nearly three years after that. They lied to me. I gave them my banana. I fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. If you tell the lie long enough and loud enough and often enough, the people will believe it. The reason I believed that about the banana was because it contained an element of truth. I could see the spots in the middle. I could see, hey, it looks like that was his legs. If you want to get somebody to believe a lie, you have to mix it in with a lot of truth. That's how they sell bad products. You mix the bad product with something good, and then you sell the two together. That's what they've done for years with Marlboro cigarettes. You know, they want you to think that Marlboro has something to do with cowboys. Would you please explain that? What is the connection between Marlboro 
And cowboys? Do all cowboys smoke? No. Do you have to smoke to be a cowboy? No. Uh, if you start smoking Marlboro, do you become a cowboy automatically? No. You may smell like a horse, but you are not a cowboy, okay? Actually, it's been proven in laboratory tests that nobody in the world smokes. Nobody smokes. Only the cigarette smokes. The person is the sucker, that's all. Somebody said, now, Brother Hovind, that's not right. David Koresh smoked for a while, but he finally quit. I don't know. I wasn't there. But they're, they're lying to you. They want you to think there's a connection between smoking and cowboys. There is no logical connection. Same thing with beer. You know, beer would not sell by itself. So they mixed beer in with another product called sports. They want you to think beer has something to do with sports. Hold on just a minute. What is the connection between alcohol and sports? You ever notice the beer commercials? They always get some big football player holding his can of Bud Dumber or Bud Stupid. They call it Bud Wiser, but it doesn't make him any wiser. You know, he's dumber or stupid one. He says, man, if you want to be a football player, you better drink this stuff. Hold on just a minute. What is the connection between alcohol and sports? Do you want your quarterback full of beer when he's out there calling the plays? Why don't you fill your defensive end full of beer before the game and see how he does? Hey, did anybody see number 14? I'm supposed to guard that guy. Oh, yeah, he just ran across the line with a touchdown. No, you don't want your athletes having anything to do with alcohol. There is no connection between the two. It is crazy. You watch Indianapolis 500. They'll be going around the track at 200 miles an hour. No, no, no. See a sign flash up says, drink bud. You want them guys drinking bud going 200 miles an hour? They have enough wrecks like it is. Some students say, well, Mr. Hovind, what's the matter? Don't you like beer? Oh, I don't know. I've never tasted it. Never tasted it? Nope. 41 years old, never had a drop in my life. Well, I've had NyQuil a couple of times, but never tasted any. And they say, well, how do you know you won't like it if you don't try it? Well, that's a dumb philosophy to live by. Have you ever laid your head under a semi-truck? Hmm? Well, how do you know you won't like it if you don't try it? <laughs> you don't have to try it to know it's bad for you. You can just look and see what it does. Hey, you ever dove head first off a tall building into the concrete? Well, how do you know you won't like it if you don't try it? No, no, no. Just, look, kids, just never taste it. You might develop a taste for it. If so, it's going to be bad for you in the long run. Just learn, hey, don't touch the stuff. Much smarter to live that way. And you don't have to have any. But they sell the beer by mixing it in with sports. And there is no connection between alcohol and sports. Zero. No connection. Totally unrelated. What they're doing is what's called the rat poison technique. They're mixing two products together that do not belong. Did you know rat poison is mostly good food? Just a little tiny bit of poison thoroughly mixed in. And by putting the two together, people think they belong together. Rat thinks, oh, wow, free bowl of food. Uh -uh, you better watch it. You're getting some poison in there with it. That's what alcohol mixed in with sports is, and that's what cigarettes mixed in with cowboys is. And that's what's happened in our public school textbooks. I'm concerned, folks. I really want to help. There are many good teachers that are sincere and intelligent and honest, and they're also concerned about what's going on in our textbooks in the curriculum. The curriculum, since the early 1960s, has become very corrupt as far as the philosophy of evolution. It's included as if it is a fact. Oh, yeah, boys and girls, this is the way it happened. They teach it like it's a fact. Here's a first-grade textbook, first grade. Notice what it says. Earth has changed much since its formation four and a half billion years ago. Now, wait just a minute. Is the world four and a half billion years old? No. But if you tell a kid in first grade that it is, he's going to believe you. 
You see, first graders believe everything you tell them. They believe bananas are moldy spider legs. And then you be sure to tell them again in second grade. Here's the second grade textbook. Since its formation, four and a half billion years ago, Earth has changed. Notice down near the bottom, it says, life too has evolved on Earth. Second grade? The world's billions of years old? Well, look, if you tell the lie long enough and loud enough and often enough, the people will believe it. By the time a kid's heard that billions of years ago, if he hears that in first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, after 15 or 20 years, he's going to believe it. He doesn't have to see any evidence, no proof. He's going to believe it's true because that's all he's heard all of his life. And you're going to hear that billions of years ago a lot, believe me, in the textbooks, in the classroom. Now, if you're ever in a class someplace or you go off to college and some professor says, millions of years ago, here's what you should do. This is classic. It'll work every time. Just raise your hand and say, uh, excuse me, sir. Were you there? And he will say, well, no, of course I wasn't there. And then you say, well, now, sir, do you know the world is billions of years old or is this just something you believe in? He's going to have to say it's something he believes because there's no possible way you can know it. Real science is observable, testable, and demonstrable. You cannot observe or test or demonstrate that the world is billions of years old. You can believe it, but you can't prove it. So it is part of somebody's religion. And he'll say, well, no, I don't know the world's billions of years old, but I believe it because my professor in college told me about it. Oh, well, then here's what you do. You raise your hand and say, uh, excuse me, sir, was your professor there? He'll say, well, no, but his professor told him about it. Oh, well, uh, excuse me, was he there? Do you know anybody who was there billions of years ago? No. The idea that the world is billions of years old is a religious belief. It is not a scientific thing you can know for sure. Now, you're welcome to believe it, but you cannot possibly know it for sure. It's just part of somebody's religion. Actually, the world is not billions of years old, as we shall see in a minute. We ought to be teaching kids real science in our textbooks instead of teaching them these crazy theories that have nothing to do with science. For instance, the first law of thermodynamics tells us matter cannot be created or destroyed. Well, if matter cannot be created, then how did the world get here? We are here, you know. So that leaves two choices. Either somebody made the world or the world made itself. Now, there's a few out there on the lunatic fringe who will say, well, no, we're not really here at all. We just think we're here. Okay, you can forget about them, all right? We are here. Therefore, either somebody made the world or the world made itself. Now, those who believe the world made itself because they're running from the Creator for some reason, they think we all got here from a Big Bang. How many have ever heard of the Big Bang Theory before? Okay. The Big Bang Theory says 20 billion years ago, all the dust and dirt in the universe was all drawn together into this one little bitty tiny dot, smaller than a period on a page. Ooh, that's crowded, yeah. And it was spinning. It spun faster and faster. This is straight from the textbooks now. It spun faster and faster and faster. Finally, it exploded <laughs> out into space, the Big Bang. And the pieces that flew off became the galaxies, the sun, the moon, the stars, all that kind of stuff. Wait a second. If you believe in the Big Bang you're already bypassing a couple of fundamental questions like, where did the matter come from? If you believe 20 billion years ago there was a Big Bang, then I would like to know what exploded and where did it come from? Hmm. You're also already bypassing the question of where did the energy come from? You don't get energy for nothing. Where did the energy come from? Who made the dirt to do the exploding and who bought the gas to run this machine and who squished it and spun it and exploded it? Where did the energy come from? And what about the laws? The universe is governed by laws. 
We have gravity, centrifugal force, inertia, basic laws of the universe. Who made the laws that govern our universe? Hmm. Evolution doesn't answer any of those questions. Therefore, it is not scientific. It's a faith. It's a religion. And you're welcome to believe in it. But don't call it science and don't use my tax dollars to push it off on these unsuspecting kids as if it is a fact. It is not a fact. It certainly is not. And there's lots of things about the Big Bang we can show you that are simply not scientific. There's no way to prove it's scientific. It was against some of the known laws of science, too, by the way. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that everything tends toward disorder. Everything tends toward disorder. In other words, if you leave something alone for a while, it will get worse, not better. Nothing gets better left to itself. Everything gets worse. Take a look at your hairdo when you wake up in the morning. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Nothing gets better left to itself. Things turn toward chaos in time. But the theory of evolution says, oh, no, boys and girls, things are getting better. We're improving. Here it is straight from the textbooks. Holt Reinhardt Winston, 1989, Earth Science. It's got a picture of a starfish. In the text to the side, it says, 3.4 billion years old, the remains of the early ancestors of modern human beings. Wait a minute. Was your great 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 grandpa a starfish? No, neither was mine. But you tell the kids, oh yeah, boys and girls, that's a fact. Three point four billion years old. Now just a minute. This world's not billions of years old, and your grandpa was not a starfish. But please do not laugh at this next picture, okay? This next picture I'm about to show you is a picture of my brother when he first wakes up in the morning after his first cup of coffee. He'll be on the left. Now please do not laugh. He cannot help it. Right here. <clears throat> a tarsier, a little bitty monkey about yay long. This is straight from the public school textbook, and it says, 30 million years ago, these animals evolved. Oh. Then it says, they are ancestors, ancestral to both humans and modern apes. Ancestors to humans, a tarsier? Grandpa? What big eyes you have, Grandpa. <laughs> The better to see you with, my boy. Look, they don't seem to be able to figure it out. In 1957, 1957, Russia launched the first satellite. They beat us in the space race. Sputnik went up. Americans panicked and said, oh, wow, we have got to catch up with the Russians in the space race. So Americans began rewriting all of the science textbooks in the late 50s. Matter of fact, the government took over. There was government funding to write science textbooks in the late 50s. If you get the textbooks from the 50s, I got the charts down here by my feet, showing how many words in the books in 1950 talked about evolution. Only 2,000 words. By 1960-something, it was up to 30,000 words talking about evolution. They said, wow, we've got to teach evolution because the Russians teach evolution in their science, and so we've got to catch our American science up. And in the early 60s and late 50s, there was a real movement to rewrite all science curriculum in America to include evolution as the unifying theme of science. And we have seen a dramatic decline in SAT scores since the 60s and a dramatic rise in lots of problems. For instance, sexually transmitted diseases have skyrocketed among teenagers since we took the moral standards out of our school. Divorce rates in this country have skyrocketed since the early 60s, huh, when America became a pagan nation. 
Violent crime offenses have gone up 544%. Things are skyrocketing. Unwed birth rates for girls 10 to 14 have gone up over 500% since the early 60s. SAT scores have plummeted. Folks, we got a problem. I think part of the problem is that stupid theory of evolution is included in the books as if it is a fact, and it's nothing but a pagan religion that destroys real science. And we'll take questions, all the questions you want here in a few minutes, but let me share with you what the creationists believe. I believe the world is only a few thousand years old. It is not millions and billions of years old, and it is easy to demonstrate that. If you um, want to see, let's talk about the age of the earth. How old is this world anyway? You're going to be told it is billions and billions of years old. That's what the textbook says, millions of years ago. Now, just a second. There is no way to prove the earth is billions of years old, and there are lots of ways to prove it is not billions of years old. But the reason time is so important to the theory of evolution is because that's the only way to justify this idea that evolution might have happened. If the world's only six or 7,000 years old, then the whole theory is useless. They somehow think that time will fix the problem. I'm here to say, no, time would not fix the problem. You say, Mr. Hovind, you mean the earth is not millions of years old? No, it is not. Well, everybody believes it is. Uh, well, now, hold it just a minute. First place, no, not everybody believes it is. Over half of the U.S. population believes the world is less than 10,000 years old. Over half. 30% of the biology teachers in public high schools believe the world is less than 10,000 years old and was instantly created in the recent past. So, no, not everybody believes the world is billions of years old. Secondly, even if everybody did believe it, that wouldn't make it true. You know, a lot of folks thought the world was flat at one time. That did not flatten it out, right? They used to teach big rocks fall faster than little rocks. No, they don't. Everything falls the same speed. You know, in 1799, President George Washington got sick. He was out riding his horse in the rain. He got the flu. They called in the best doctors in America. The doctors came. They looked at the president. They said, oh, the president's sick. That'll be 50 bucks, please. You know how they do it. And uh, they said, we need to call the barber right away. Call the barber. I said, call the barber? Why? The president's sick. Yes, see, back in those days, the barber was the guy with the razor. And he would come, if somebody was sick, he would cut their wrist and drain some blood out. They called the barber in to bleed George Washington, 1799. They took blood out of his left arm, and then to make sure he wasn't out of balance, they took the blood out of the right arm also. You've got to keep him balanced, you know. The president got worse. They said, oh, the president's getting worse. Hurry, we've got to take out some more blood. So they took out some more blood, out of both sides, of course. You've got to balance them out. The president got worse. And they said, oh, he's standing at death's door. Hurry, we've got to pull him through. We've got to take out some more blood. So they drained him the third time. Guess what happened after they bled him the third time? He died. And the doctor said, well, we did the best we knew to do. And they sure did. They killed him. Now, these doctors that killed George Washington were very sincere. They were extremely intelligent. They were highly trained. And they were dead wrong in what they believed. We've got textbook writers that are very sincere. I don't question that. They're very intelligent, real smart. I don't argue with that. But if they're telling you the world's billions of years old, they're wrong. This world is not billions of years old. It cannot be, as we shall see. It is so easy to demonstrate and prove this world simply cannot be billions of years old. For instance, the population of the earth is an interesting fact. Right now on the world, there are five and a half billion people. That's a lot. But the world is not overcrowded, okay? Did you know the whole world could go to stand up in Jacksonville, Florida, city limits? 
everybody in the world could fit in that one city? People say, oh, the world's overcrowded. Have you been to Kansas lately? No, the world is not overcrowded, okay? That's a bunch of baloney. They're trying to justify abortion with that statement. Well, we need to kill off some people. No, we don't either, okay? But the world is not overcrowded. Back in 1800, there were only one billion people in the world. One billion. You go back to the year zero, 2,000 years ago, the whole world only had a fourth of a billion people. Huh. The world, the population growth curve looks like the whole thing started about 4,400 years ago. Well, that's interesting. That fits exactly what the creationists have been saying all along. We believe the world was instantly created about 6,000 years ago. 4,400 years ago, there was a flood that destroyed the world. Noah built an ark, saved all the people on board that wanted to get on, and all two of each of the critters. And since the flood, they have diversified. There's been variety, but there's been no evolution. I was speaking in Boston at a university one time. There were six professors and their classes all came. All of them believed in evolution, except me. They wanted me to teach on creation. I said, I'd be glad to. I was sharing what the creationists teach, that 6,000 years ago the world was created, 4,400 years ago there was a flood. Since the flood, the animals have diversified. One of the professors in the audience, he said, now, Mr. Holman, do you mean to tell me that all the different kinds of dogs in the world, we have 250 different kinds of dogs in the world. Do you think all the different dogs in the world came from only two dogs off of Noah's Ark? I said, uh, sir, would you look at what you're teaching your students? You're teaching your students that all the dogs in the world came from a rock. <laughs> yeah, I'd a whole lot rather believe they came from two dogs off of Noah's Ark than all the dogs came from a rock. Now, come on. <laughs> who's got science and who's got faith in this one here? I was at a university one time, and the smart aleck student said to Mr. Hoven, what would you say if scientists could produce life in the laboratory? I said, well, first place, they haven't. They're a long ways from it. Secondly, if a bunch of smart scientists get together and produce life in the laboratory, that's going to prove that it takes intelligence to create life, which is what I've been saying all along. It has to have an intelligent creator. That's that's just proof for me, not for them. But the creationists believe 6,000 years ago, God made everything. 4,400 years ago, there was a flood, and the human population chart says that's exactly correct. If man had been here for millions of years, there should be a lot more people by now. The fact that there are only 5.5 billion says, we're right, this world is not millions of years old. There are a few more facts here. The sun is burning. How many knew that already? The sun is burning, okay? Did you know... As the sun burns, the sun is losing 5 million tons per second. It's on quite a diet. 5 million tons per second. The sun is losing weight. As the sun burns, the sun is shrinking. The sun is getting smaller. Nobody argues with that. The sun is shrinking. Now, this is going to be complicated, so listen carefully, especially for the junior high kids. So let's, try to follow me here. If the sun is shrinking, and it is, that means that it used to be bigger. How many can figure that one out with no help? All right, good, good. The sun used to be bigger, right? Well, now, hold it just a minute. If the world's only six or 7,000 years old, that's no problem. The sun was a little bigger back in Adam and Eve's day. No big deal. But you want to tell me it's billions of years old? And the dinosaurs lived 70 million years ago? If they lived 70 million years ago, 
You should have seen how big the sun was then. It's big enough to touch the earth. If they did live that long ago, I know what happened to them. They fried. <laughs> Charcoal broiled, man. No, they didn't live no 70 million years ago. Come on. They could not possibly. The earth, earth cannot be that old. Now, I know you have to have 70 million years to make your theory look good, but the earth simply is not that old. It cannot be. There are many things from the galaxies, the way they're spinning, they can't be billions of years old. From the way the planets are cooling down, there's no way they can be billions of years old. Saturn's rings are expanding. They're moving away from the planet. They should be gone if they were billions of years old. They can't possibly be. The moon is going around the Earth. How many knew that already? The moon is going around the Earth? Okay. Did you know, as the moon goes around the Earth, the moon is getting further and further away from the Earth. We are slowly losing the moon. Now, it's only a couple inches per year. Nothing to worry about. Plus, there's nothing you can do about it anyway. But the moon is getting further and further from the Earth. Now, kids, this is going to be complicated. So listen carefully. If the moon is getting further and further from the Earth, and it is, that means that it used to be closer. How many can figure that one out with no help? All right. The moon used to be closer. Well, now, wait a minute. That would create a problem, you see, because the moon causes the tides. And if you bring the moon back in closer, the tides would be much higher. Matter of fact, a couple of million years ago, the tides would have been so high, it would drown everything on earth twice a day. And you can only drown comfortably once a day. And you want me to believe the dinosaurs lived 70 million years ago? Ooh, if they did, I know what happened to them. They got tired of drowning twice a day, man. They quit. They said, we can't handle this no more. No, this world is not billions of years old. I wish we had time to go into all the different facts, the, this enormous number of facts that say the universe, the moon, the earth, the sun, nothing can be billions of years old. The earth has a magnetic field. Our magnetic field is getting weaker and weaker and weaker. Which means, of course, it used to be stronger. You go backwards in time, a few thousand years, 20 or 30 or 50,000 years, the, magnetic earth, the earth was like a magnetic star. No life could be here only 30 or 40,000 years ago. By the way, as the magnetic field declines, it changes the rate of carbon-14 formation. You can't prove how old things are by carbon-14 beyond a couple thousand years because the magnetic field is weakening. You've got a rubber ruler you're measuring things with. We don't have time to go into all that, but here's a few more here. The Earth, the world is spinning. The Earth is spinning around. How many knew that already? We're turning around, okay? We're turning around a little over 1,000 miles an hour at the equator. But the Earth is slowing down. The Earth slows down a thousandth of a second every day. You probably did not even notice it yesterday. But we slowed down a thousandth of a second. Did you feel it? Uh, yeah, I feel it. We're slowing down. Probably not. A thousandth of a second is no big deal. But every ten months, they have to add a second to the clock because the clocks go off compared to the spin of the Earth. 1990, New Year's Eve, they added a second to the clock. They did it again. Several times. They did it again in June 1992. Go get Astronomy Magazine from June of 92. Page 24 says, Earth's rotation is slowing down. June is going to have to be one second longer than normal. At midnight, they added a second to the clock. They called it leap second. Now, most folks have heard of leap year, but a lot of people have never heard of leap second. We have a leap second every 10 months because the Earth is slowing down. Now, kids, this is going to be complicated, so listen carefully. If the Earth is slowing down, and it is, that means that it used to be going 
faster. How many can figure that one out with no help? All right? No, no, wait a minute. If the world's only six or 7,000 years old, like I believe, that's no problem. The world was going a little faster. Adam and Eve had a 23 and a half hour day instead of a 24 hour day. Big deal. But you want me to believe the world's billions of years old and dinosaurs lived 70 million years ago? Do you know how fast the world would have been going 70 million years ago? Hey, if they did live 70 million years ago, I know what happened to them. They got blown off. No, this world cannot possibly be 70 billion years old. I'm sorry, you are, or 70 million, you are mistaken. A couple of more here. You know, in Texas, I lived in East Texas for five years. They have oil wells. We had 30,000 oil wells just in our county. When they drill down into the ground, sometimes the oil down there is under unbelievable pressure. It'll come squirting up out of the ground like a big zit. Oil pressure, 20,000 pounds per square inch is found in oil wells. Well, the guys who study the rocks on top of the oil, the geologists say, hey, this rock can't handle 20,000 psi for more than probably 10 or 15,000 years. It should have cracked the rock. The pressure should have leaked off. Okay, I agree. Then I have two obvious questions. Number one, where did the oil come from? Number two, why is it still under pressure if the pressure should have leaked off in less than 10 or 15 or 20,000 years? Well, I got a theory on that. I believe six or 7,000 years ago, the world was instantly created. 4,400 years ago, there was a flood. In that flood, lots of people and critters drowned. As their bodies got covered with layer after layer after layer of mud, the flood lasted about a year. The mud got three or 4,000 feet thick on top of them, and it squished them into oil. Did you know you can squeeze a ton of garbage into oil in the laboratory in about 20 minutes? So the oil is down in the ground from the people and animals that drowned in the flood. It's only been there 4,400 years, and that means, if you stop and really think about that, you drove over here today on some of your ancestors. Next time you're at the gas station pumping them in, you can say, bye, Grandpa. You should have listened to Noah. You should have got on the ark. Yeah, yeah. No, that's where the oil comes from. This world can't be billions of years old. The oil pressure would be gone. The way the Mississippi Delta, all the deltas are growing. They can't be millions of years old. The earth should be one big swamp by now. The continents are eroding flat. Here's an interesting one. The oldest tree in the world is the bristlecone pine tree. It's in Southern California. It's called the Methuselah tree. It's 4,300 years old. Oldest living tree. Well, now, wait a minute. If this world is millions of years old, why isn't there an older tree someplace? Why is the oldest tree 4,300 years old? Hmm. I got a theory on that. I believe it's very simple, you see. I think about 6,000 years ago, the whole world was created instantly, and 4,400 years ago, there was a flood that destroyed the world. And so the oldest tree ought to be less than 4,400 years old, and it is. Same thing with the erosion rate for Niagara Falls and many, many, many things tell us about the changing of the earth. It cannot possibly be billions of years old. And i got enough stuff to go for hours. People say, okay, now just a minute, Mr. Hovind. If the world's only six or 7,000 years old, when did the dinosaurs live? Did dinosaurs live on the earth? Oh, oh, sure, they did. Yeah, they really did. Well, when did they live? Well, dinosaurs had to live with man. Dinosaurs lived with man all along. You see, dinosaurs are nothing but giant lizards. 
Lizards never stop growing. They never stop. People stop growing. When you're 16 or 18, you're going to stop growing. You're going to reach a maximum size. At least horizontally, you're going to stop. Or vertically, you'll stop. Some people go horizontally for years after that. But your vertical growth is going to stop. Lizards never stop growing. So I believe, and many other folks believe, before that flood wrecked the world, the world was very different. People used to live over 900 years. And the animals that lived hundreds of years just grew to be huge. Did you know they found fossils of animals that are gigantic by today's standards? Do you have cockroaches in this part of the country? There are cockroaches around here? Did you know they have found fossil cockroaches 18 inches long, a foot and a half long? That's a big cockroach. Back in those days, you did not call Orkin. You called out the National Guard. <laughs> get him, get him. No. No, this world is not billions of years old. And these giant animals, you know the word prehistoric? You say, those are prehistoric animals. The word prehistoric was invented in the 1800s. There's no such thing as prehistoric. All the animals lived with man at the same time. Dinosaurs, man, everything lived at the same time for about 1,600 years. And then the world was wrecked by that flood. You say, oh, wait a minute, if dinosaurs lived with man, what happened to them? Well, I think Noah took dinosaurs on the ark. Dinosaurs on the ark, they're kind of big, aren't they? Well, the big ones were big, but the little ones were little. And Noah was 600 years old when he built that boat. He was smart enough to figure out, you don't have to bring the biggest ones you can find. Bring two babies. Just be sure to get a pink one and a blue one. That's all you've got to worry about. And, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to bring babies. They're smaller. They eat less. They sleep a lot more. They're a little tougher to handle a rough voyage. You know, kids can bounce and get up and keep going. Adults fall down and break. Um, so, yeah, I think he brought young ones on the ark. You say, dinosaurs on the ark? Yeah. He only had to bring two of each kind, not two of every individual variety. There's only about 15 or 20 or 30 different kinds of dinosaurs. Now, the books have hundreds listed. I think about 800 listed in the books. That's because there's a real tendency. If you find a dinosaur bone, try to make it a new dinosaur so you can be famous. They find a little bump on the bone, slightly different, you know, and make it a whole new species when it's just another variety of the same thing. But Noah only had to bring two of each kind on the ark. After the flood, I think man killed off most of the dinosaurs. And that's why we have all the legends about people killing dragons. You know there's a lot of stories about people killing dragons. Gilgamesh slew a dragon, Beowulf slew a dragon, Prince George slew a dragon. Lots of stories about people killing dragons. Where did those stories come from? Are they just mythology? Well, maybe so. But there's an awful lot of stories that sound awful similar. Maybe they're founded on facts. Maybe people really were killing off the dinosaurs. I think as time came along, that flood was 4,400 years ago. That's a long time. Dinosaurs became more and more rare. People were killing them off. Matter of fact, some species, there was a price put on their hide. If you could kill a Tyrannosaurus rex, you would be a hero. they tell stories about you around the campfire. So probably many of them became extinct in the first thousand years or so. But I think dinosaurs have lived with man all along, and I think a few dinosaurs, including this one, the Apatosaurus, and this one, the Plesiosaurus, a few dinosaurs are still alive right now, today. Dinosaurs today in the 90s? Yeah. 
Now, I don't want you to think there's millions of them, and you need to be careful when you go out in the hallway, because one of them might step on you, okay? There are probably no dinosaurs in your high school here. But I believe there are some still alive. Let me demonstrate my point here. You say, dinosaurs still alive? Yes. Now, they're not as big as they used to be. They're only 25 or 30 feet long. But I'll give you an example. How many have ever heard of uh, the Loch Ness Monster? Have you heard of the Loch Ness Monster? Did you know there have been 11,000 people that claim they have seen the Loch Ness Monster? 11,000 witnesses. Now, no question there's been some hoaxes and frauds. I don't question that. Yes, there has been. But if you get 11,000 people that claim they've seen something, maybe they have seen something. Right? I think it's a plesiosaurus, a dinosaur still alive. Now, if you believe in evolution and you think they lived 70 million years ago, you're going to have a hard time with this. I understand. The concept of a dinosaur still living? Oh, that's crazy. No, it's not. Not if the world's young. Makes perfect sense. Did you know there's a big swamp in Africa? Largest swamp in the world is in the middle of Africa. It's on the map here. That big green dot in the center. That swamp is bigger than the whole state of Alabama. That swamp is 55,000 square miles. That's a big swamp. Did you know there have been 20 scientific expeditions into that swamp in the last 20 years looking for apatosauruses, dinosaurs that are still alive? If you show this to one of the natives that lives in that swamp, the native will say, oh, yeah, that's Mokili Membi. He lives out there. They say, don't bother him, though. He's not too friendly. Mokili Membi? Dr. Roy Mackle, University of Chicago, biology professor. Here's his book right here. Dr. Mackle went over to the swamp in 1980, spent six weeks. He said the first thing he noticed about the swamp was the mosquitoes. They landed on him at the rate of 1,000 per hour. Bloodthirsty mosquitoes. I was up in Minnesota one time speaking at a church up there, and I thought I was going to get carried away by the mosquitoes. The pastor at the church... I was talking to him. I said, man, you got mosquitoes. They're terrible around here. Ugh, what do you do with the mosquitoes? He said, what are you talking about? We don't have a single mosquito in the whole state of Minnesota. I said, you don't? He said, no, they're all married and have large families. Don't have a single one. They're all married. Never mind. I'll explain it to you later. Oh, <clears throat> a little sleepy here. But Dr. Mackle went into the swamp after spending six weeks in there, interviewing people who live there. He came back the next year and spent nine weeks and a quarter of a million dollars. Here's his book, name, address, phone numbers in the front cover. When they showed a picture of an apatosaurus to the natives in the swamp, the natives said, yeah, that's Mokili Membi. Dr. Mackle said, fellas, that's a dinosaur. They've been dead for 70 million years. And the natives said, well, we're sorry, we didn't know that. See, we've never been to college to study evolution. All we know is... We see them out there once in a while when we're fishing. There's an article in uh, Time Life, Mysterious Creatures. Got the book right here. A whole section in this book. You might have this in your library. Time Life, Mysterious Creatures. You know, it's part of a series, 1495. Get one a month. Cancel any time. Uh, you know how they do it. There's a section in here about Mokili Membi in the Congo Swamp. There have been 20 expeditions over there now trying to find dinosaurs that are still alive. And again, I don't want you to think there's millions, but there's some in the Congo Swamp. I think there's a couple in Loch Ness. The Loch Ness Monster is probably a plesiosaurus. Did you know, in 1977, 
A Japanese fishing boat was dragging their nets behind their boat fishing down by Australia, New Zealand. When they pulled the net up to see what kind of fish they caught, in that net, 1977, they had a picture of it right here. They had a dinosaur in their net. 4,000 pound, 32 foot long, plesiosaurus. The fellows on the ship said, that's a dinosaur. What's he doing here? They've been dead for millions of years. Well, see, nobody told this one about it. He was still around in 1977. They saved some tissue sample, measured it, weighed it, and threw it back. It stunk. It had been dead for a few days. They said, we're not having that thing on board. They made a commemorative stamp out of it for Japanese mail. Stamps right here on the page. You can come by and take a look at this. Could there have been a 32-foot-long dinosaur caught just 1977? Well, that depends upon your view of history. If you believe in evolution and you think dinosaurs lived millions of years ago, you're going to have an awful hard time with that one. But if you believe the world's not millions of years old, then it makes perfect sense. There could be a few still around. Hey, did you know a dead dinosaur washed up on the beach in California? Here's the article. California's Nessie, Skin Diver Magazine. A dead dinosaur, 40 feet long, with a 20-foot neck, washed up on the beach. People came for miles to see that thing. A plesiosaurus? How can that possibly be? Did you know there have been over a thousand people that claim they have seen a creature called the Lake Champlain monster in Vermont, between Vermont and New York? Lake Champlain is a long, skinny lake. There's a book, Champ, Beyond the Legend. That lake's about 120 miles long. I met the lady who took this photograph. Her picture and her story appears on programs like Unsolved Mysteries or Sightings. Her name is Sandy Mancia. She's a friend of mine. She took the photograph, 1977, of the Lake Champlain monster. There have been a thousand people that claim they have seen it. What is going on? Is it possible there's a dinosaur in Lake Champlain? Did you know there have been over 200 different places around the world where they're still reporting small dinosaurs alive right now? So I just want you to get a different view of history. This world is not billions of years old. There have been reports out of the Congo swamp for the last 150 years about dinosaurs still living in that swamp. The natives call it Mokili Membi, and I think there are a few still around. So don't think there's millions of them, but there's some. And I think in the science textbooks, they ought to stick with science. And if they're going to tell you the world got here by a process called evolution and man came from millions of years ago, we used to be a monkey, first place, that's not science. Secondly, that's not fair to only show you one side and not show you the other options. Over half the U.S. population does not believe that, so why do they teach it? In the textbooks, they'll give some proofs for evolution. Here's what they're going to say. Boys and girls, we can prove evolution because we have similar structures with other animals. Oh, yeah, man has two bones in his wrist, the radius and the ulna. Mm -hmm. So? Well, so does the dolphin. The dolphin's got two bones in his flipper, radius and ulna. Yeah, so? Well, the bat's got two bones in his wing, the radius and the ulna. Yeah, I agree. And then they'll say, don't you see? That proves we have a common ancestor. Uh, no, that might prove we have a common creator. Maybe the same guy designed all three of them animals, and that's why they have similarities. Not because they got a common ancestor. Maybe there's a common designer. Hey, did you know the lug nuts from a Chevy will screw onto a Pontiac? 
That proves they both evolved from a Honda 40 million years ago. <laughs> That's the same logic. In the textbooks, they're going to say, boys and girls, we know that we came from the same animals as these other animals. We have a common ancestor because the baby, as it develops inside the mother, the baby has gill slits. Gill slits? You ever heard that one before? Did you know that was proven wrong back in 1908? The human baby does not have gill slits. It's got little folds of skin. They call them vestigial or uh, yeah, vestigial organs, gill slits. No, they're not vestigial gill slits. They're just folds of skin. Each one develops into a different part of the hearing and, re and respiratory tract. It's got nothing to do with breathing. Hey, I've seen some fat folks that got four or five chins. They can't breathe through any of them except the top one. No, those are not gill slits. And that was bad science. That ought to be taken out of the textbooks. That was proven wrong in 1908. Ernest Haeckel, the pre forerunner to Adolf Hitler and Nazism, is the guy who invented that thing about the gill slits. And it was proven wrong back in the early 1900s. They're going to say, now, boys and girls, we've got more proof for evolution. We can see these animals change. You can see the peppered moth change from a black moth to a white moth. That, that's going to be in the books, I assure you. You know what happened in that experiment? In 1800, they counted the moths in England. They found out that 95% of them were white moths. Only 5% were black. Then the trees turned black as they burned the coal in the factories. And somebody counted the moths and found out that 95% of the moths were black. Only 5% white. And they said, ah, see, this is evolution, industrial melanism. This proves that white moth turned into a black moth. Ah, uh, no. What happened was, when the tree turned black, the white moth got ate by a bird because he stuck out like a sore thumb on that black tree, and the black moths had more babies. That's all that happened. It's a change in the population, but it's not evolution. It started off a moth. It is still a moth. Some of the stuff they give for evolution is crazy. You're going you're to hear about Archaeopteryx, the missing link. You ever heard about Archaeopteryx? They're in Jurassic Park. How many saw the movie Jurassic Park? They say, oh, yeah, dinosaurs turned into birds. Dinosaurs turned into birds? That's a little far-fetched. Oh, it's no problem. You see, you just lose a few pounds, grow a few feathers, and take off flying, man. Let's go. Flap. You can do it. <laughs> There's a few differences between a dinosaur and a bird. Uh, reptiles have a three-chambered heart. Birds have a four-chambered heart. Very different. Their lungs are totally different. Reproductive system, very different. Bone structure, very different. No, there's a lot of differences. But they say Archaeopteryx is the missing link. Half bird, half dinosaur. You know, Archaeopteryx is strange. There's only been six of them found. They're only 12 inches long. It's a bird, like a pigeon. But he's got claws on his wings, right by his elbow. You say, oh, see, he's got claws on his wings. That proves he used to be a dinosaur. <laughs> Wait a minute. Some birds have claws, some don't. Most don't, matter of fact. Only the Hoetzin... Archaeopteryx and Hesperornis. I had teeth. The ostrich has claws on his wings. But that doesn't prove it used to be a dinosaur. Textbook says Archaeopteryx has teeth in his beak. That proves it used to be a dinosaur. Uh, excuse me just a minute. Teeth in the beak does not prove it used to be a dinosaur. Some birds have teeth. Most don't. Some reptiles have teeth. Some don't. Some mammals have teeth. Some don't. Some of your teachers have teeth, and some don't, okay? That doesn't prove a thing, all right? It's just an oddball bird. By the way, going from having teeth to not having teeth is an example of losing something, not gaining something. You know, they told me when I went to high school, man used to have a tail, but we lost it just because we didn't need it. I thought, didn't need it. Have you ever thought how handy a tail would be? Have you ever come to the door with two sacks of groceries? Wish you had some way to open that door? That'd be nice, man. Grab your tail and wrap around that door and let yourself in. 
Have you ever been driving down the highway and wished you had something to tune the radio knob or hold that can of Coke for you? It'd be a little harder to get your britches on. They'd have to put another zipper or something, but somebody could figure that out. Lost it because we didn't need it. Come on. That's not evolution. That's, that's not science. That's crazy. All the evidence is that they give. Evidence from the fossil record. You know, they don't find any fossil missing links. Zero. None. That's why they've got a new theory now called punctuated equilibrium, which means maybe a dinosaur laid an egg and a bird hatched out of the egg. That's why we don't find the missing links, because evolution happened so rapidly, none of the fossils were preserved. Hold it, hold it. What you're saying is, because we don't find any proof, that proves it? Try that one in a court of law. Judge, we can't find any proof, therefore we know he's guilty. <laughs> That's what punctuated equilibrium says. They're admitting there is no fossil evidence. But see, folks, the thing that concerns me the most, I guess, which of the views you choose to believe in, creation or evolution, is going to determine many, many, many things about how you behave. Your whole view of life, decisions that you make on what's right and what's wrong, is based on whether you believe in creation or evolution. Is man just an animal? Is there nothing more to life? Is it okay to steal, rob, kill, murder? Your philosophy of life is at stake. I want to challenge you. If you're a good science class, scientists ought to look at all sides and make a wise decision. And you science teachers ought to educate your students. Don't indoctrinate them. Educate them. Teach them all sides. Let them make an intelligent choice. There is ample evidence that the world is not old. Dinosaurs did not live millions of years ago. And there might be some still alive. So tonight, if you want to come, 7 o'clock tonight, First Baptist Church, right around the corner, is my last session. Everybody, every visitor, if you haven't been there yet, you can come tonight and count as your own first visitor. Every visitor is $5 off of any of my videotapes. And I got lots of videotapes. I got debates from universities on videotape. Um, if you want to get some of the videotapes, I got some here someplace. No limit. Every visitor, 5 bucks off. And I got stacks and stacks of them there. We'll give you as many as you want. Bring 100 visitors and get a whole bunch. I just want to help challenge you and encourage you. Folks, you need to look at this properly and say, wait a minute. Maybe we were created. Mm -hmm. Well, then maybe that creator has some rules to live by. Mm -hmm. Maybe so. You better find out what they are and be doing them. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, you the boss here in charge of this? Great. Thank you so much. You're tuned in with the Underground Christian Network.